So last week we pointed out that Mark chapter 7, 6 and 7, and chapter 8 share parallels. We looked at four of them. Uh, Jesus getting in a debate with Pharisees, Jesus getting on a boat, uh, Jesus healing. Today we're going to look at the two parallels that are left between chapter 6 and 7 and chapter 8 that Mark is going to use to really highlight everything that's going on today. So in chapter 7, verses 31 through 36, Jesus heals a man that's born deaf. And Jesus does so by pulling the man aside, making gestures with him, spitting on his hands, and sticking his fingers in the ear. You see that same spittle use in today's healing on the eyes. And then in chapter 7:37, in response to Jesus healing the deaf man, the response that the people in the crowd give is that Jesus might be the Messiah because he's opening the ears of the deaf. Well, in today's text, instead of wondering if Jesus is the Messiah, we see in chapter 8, Peter declares it so. Now this makes today's reading a capstone moment. So it's going to be one of the few places where I'm going to hit it on two different sermons. <laughs> we're going to come into it today, and then later we're going to go uh, beyond it. And that's because in this section here, Mark is summing up everything we've been looking at for the last 16 weeks of sermon. When we started, we talked about how Mark's gospel opens with this is the gospel of Jesus the Christ, the Son of God, and how we run into those terms and define them with all the theology we have from 2,000 years of church history, and we don't really hear Mark for himself. And we started the whole series on Mark of what does it mean to be the Son of God, what does it mean to be the Messiah, and Mark has taken all eight of these chapters where Jesus has been doing ministry, the, the Pharisees have been challenging him, and the disciples have not gotten it. They started out in chapter 6 when Jesus feeds the 5,000, getting mad at Jesus for feeding the 5,000, getting upset with him on the boat. We looked even last week where Jesus tells them not to take the bread of the leaven of the Pharisees, and they're arguing about whether they brought food onto the boat. So they still haven't quite got you. But Mark today progressively takes us up to the point where Peter makes his famous confession of faith, you are the Christ, the Messiah. So going back a little bit, in verse 22, it says they came to Bethsidia. All you need to know about Palestinian geography is that Mark has now had Jesus start to head south. So Jesus has been hanging around in Galilee, going from east to west, back and forth in these verses so far, and now Mark is narratively making a turn as Jesus slowly starts working his way down to the city of confrontation, Jerusalem, where the gospel will end. And on their way, some people bring a blind man to him and beg Jesus to touch them. Now this is an interesting story um, because this is only one of three times Jesus ever isolates a person to heal. In the Gospel of Mark, Jesus tends to heal in the midst of the crowd. But the two other times he does it is back in chapter 5, where Jesus rose the, the synagogue official's daughter. And the mourners were laughing at Jesus when he said, oh, she's only asleep, don't worry, she'll rise. And it makes sense Jesus kicked those folks out. 
Jesus is like, oh, I'm a healer, and they, <laughs> so it makes sense, and that's, that's that Jesus would push them out. And when we looked at chapter <laughs> 7, verse 33, that death name we've talked about already, where Jesus pulls him aside and makes the, the pantomime to communicate with the person and, and let him know what he's going to do, it makes sense Jesus isolates him, so there's no visual distraction. And then we have this blind man here, because verse 23, he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. There's not a clear reason that Mark gives us for that having happened, but there's three elements key to this. Uh, the first one is, Mark is drawing a strong parallel between what happened with the deaf man and this guy. Because the Isaiah quote that, that is running through all this is that he opened the ears of the deaf and he opened the eyes of the blind. So Mark has had the first run up in 6 and 7, the feeding of the 5,000 and everything goes to Israel, open the ears of the deaf. Then he has got, had Jesus working in the Gentile areas, and now he opens the eyes of the blind. Now, I don't want to get dragged into it, but there's also the issue theologically. There's three key elements here that are really interesting. First off, this is the only time Jesus ever asked anybody something like this in verse 24. Can you, uh, sorry, 23, can you see anything? We have Jesus do a partial healing here. He takes the person away, and, and it just, this one is an interesting record. Every other time in Mark or any of the other Gospels, Jesus, it, it just tends to be instantaneous, but here it's partial. And we also, when we talk about chapter 7, I pointed out very strongly the point was that the man was not born deaf. He, he had hearing loss, and the point is his tongue is bound, so when Jesus heals him, he says, be loosened. And the person already has speech, so he can already proclaim. This is the same kind of thing. This gentleman was not born blind. It's partial, and we see that when his eyes are partially open. He knows enough about vision to say, those people look like trees. If he'd have been born completely blind, he wouldn't have had any context to make the statement. And then it is in that response that he's partially blind that the healing becomes complete. Now that's going to get really important when I get to application on this one. Now in verse 26, we also see another term. Way back in chapter 1, we looked at a case where Jesus heals a leper. And it's an interesting one because a lot of your Bibles say that Jesus gets indignant with the man. And I actually think that's a pretty good translation of it. A leper comes to Jesus and asks him to heal him, and Jesus gets indignant because he knows the guy's a blabbermouth. And Jesus knows that if he heals him, he's going to go around and spread all the rumors that Jesus is the magic man healing everything, and then no one's going to listen to what Jesus has to say. Jesus heals the man anyways, and from then on in Mark, you can start in chapter 1, Jesus can't go anywhere without a crowd. Now, when Jesus healed that deaf man last week, they started, to talk, well, two weeks ago, they started to talk about how Jesus was the Messiah. And Jesus had told them, you know, keep this quiet, do not say anything about it. But they started talking about the Messiah, the Jewish Savior, the political son of David who might come and overthrow the Romans. They started talking about all that happening. And Jesus wanted to put a lid on it. And by here in 
26, Jesus now takes forceful control to squash it. And we're going to see in later chapters, Jesus never denies being the Messiah, but at the same time, he is never going to affirm that he's the pop Messiah. He never makes the promise that he's going to be what the Pharisees think the Messiah is going to be or what the people think he's going to be. But he's going to define, as our whole thing has been going, what being the Son of God, what being the Christ means himself. And if this man goes and starts spreading throughout the Gentile world that Jesus has opened his eyes, everyone's going to just hear the pop messianic, not Jesus' own teaching. So, that brings up, if the man that Jesus heals this time is silent, it brings up a turn now to the disciples. So Jesus is walking in 27 towards Caesarea, and he asks his disciples, who do you say that I am? And they list off what everyone's talking about Jesus. The answers kind of show a gambit, and it's the same formulation you find in chapter 6. It's worded the exact same way. Some say you're John the Baptist, others Elijah, and others one of the prophets. Mark, by saying that, is saying that John the Baptist, well, that's a recent prophet, prophetic event. That's something most people recognize. Elijah was the prophet of old. So, Jesus, you're in the old pattern of the old greats. Or that you're some sort of prophet, which is just normal. Jesus says that he is none of those when he gets in 29 and asks, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered him, you are the Messiah. That is the pivot for the Gospel of Mark. From here on out, we have been looking at Jesus' whole mission in Galilee. Now that we've hit this point, Jesus is very much more going to be heading towards Jerusalem and trying to explain to the disciples what Messiahship means. And we see even here in Peter's claim that you are the Messiah, Peter gets the person, and he gets that there's something special about Jesus, but there's a reason why Jesus in verse 30 sternly orders them not to tell anyone about it, because Peter's immediately going to blow it. Because <laughs> verse 31, Jesus teaches them the Son of Man. Notice Jesus uses Son of Man. He's still very cautious around that Messiah label, even though Peter has just said it. He teaches them the Son of Man must undergo great suffering. Be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, the scribes, and be killed, and after three days rise again. And then Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. And this is not the only time there will be misunderstandings. Chapter 12 and 14, where Jesus says the Messiah must suffer, and, and then the disciples start arguing about who's the greater in heaven. <laughs> well, Peter's rebuke of Jesus gets him turned away. Get behind me, Satan, for you are setting your mind not on divine things, but on human things. Now, I believe that that gives the application mark very much intense for this whole section of 6 through 8 and everything he's brought the reader through so far. And I think that blind man's partial healing, healing sums it up. Peter, when Jesus makes 
this question, who do you say I, say I am, and is able to say to Jesus, you are the Messiah, he's not seeing clearly. He's seeing Jesus, but it, it, the people are looking like trees, it's fuzzy and it's blurry, and there must be a second act later where the complete vision comes into the church. And then if we start reading that back through the Gospel of Mark, we start seeing that, well, Mark was not written for anyone that was going through the events of Mark. It was written for the church afterwards. And we start seeing that there is a lot of application that Mark is trying to make, have us make in our own lives. You'll notice that both these two miracles that prove Jesus' messiahship are not from zero. He's not healing someone who's born deaf. He's not healing someone who's born blind. Mark is healing someone who had hearing and then lost it, who had vision and then lost it. And so Mark, writing to a Christian audience, is here, kind of calling us all out. There are many who begin the Christian walk and they start out with, as Jesus says, ears to hear and eyes to see. And they have knowledge of Christ as far as being Son of God, as being the Messiah, but through long living, disobedience, or placing our own expectations of what that must mean onto Christ, you start to lose it. The words of Scripture start to fall on deaf ears. The way God is moving about us, we lose the ability to see. And Mark is here giving the prescription that it's through the person of Jesus and these interactions that those ears are again opened and those eyes again see. But it has to pivot on this particular part. Who do you say I am? The Messiah. Good enough. This is where most churches now fall dead. Then he began to teach them that the Son of Man must undergo great suffering, be rejected by the elders, the chief priests and scribes will be killed, and after three days rise again. You may think that in churches that hang crosses on all their buildings, that would not be a particularly controversial subject. But to not tip next week too much, we get into verse 34, if anyone to become my followers, let them deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. The spiritual deafness, the spiritual blindness of the church starts almost always, not in some initial lack of belief. We're talking about the church invisible here. In, in church theology, you have the church visible, which is the institution. Everybody comes into it. It doesn't matter who you are. The church Invisible is composed of all the believers, those who have undergone the great change of heart, been born again. The faults in the church invisible, and those believers that have been born again, they all tend to start not with an inability to say Jesus is the Messiah. We all get that from Peter. Jesus even tells Peter, flesh and blood didn't reveal that. Where the problems that that those who, who have been lifelong believers get into is the denial of the cross and its application to self. It, it becomes a sort of 
The gospel becomes a past tense. I have often been of the conviction that much of religion in the United States is about escaping consequences. We pray to God solely so that we can be libertine in whatever field you want. And you hear it quite often when political pundits of either side actually get up and start talking. Well, because I believe in God, I'm allowed to test him in whatever field I want. God will protect me if I go right down the highway at 80 without a helmet, and I didn't bother to check my brakes before I got on the motorcycle. We've all heard some spin on that attitude, and it tends to be very common in American churches. We have the presumption that because Christ forgives sin, he will forgive this sin when I go and do it. It becomes very easy for the church to fall into what some on the other side of theological debates accuse us of. It was always the accusation when we said we were saved just by faith in Christ, by just accepting his sacrifice for us, that that would make us bad people. We'd just be like, oh, Jesus took care of it, so now we can go do it. Now, history proves that completely false. The folks who most believe that Jesus paid it all were some of the dreariest people you've ever met in history. Martin Luther was a very dreadful person to be around at times. Same with John Calvin and John Wesley would not have been very fun. Most of the folks who take grace the most seriously are the ones who live out works harder than anyone else does. But what can happen is always just an issue in the churches. Those who say grace, who say we're saved by faith, but only hear it, but only see it partially, are some of the ones who live the worst. And they require the rest of this gospel that Mark puts to get there. Uh, like I said, this is the only passage we are going to look at twice because we have turned. We've turned from Jesus in narrative form, Jesus in as the healer and mysterious, to Jesus explaining to the disciples what the cross means, focused in on this right here. If anyone to become my followers, let them deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. Mark has pivoted an entire book of the Bible upon that statement. We would do wise to take heed. Let us pray.